John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and it can be found on page 1023 in your pew Bible, as well as on the screen behind me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you haven't already closed them, you can keep your Bibles open to 1 John 5. Uh, if you have closed them, I invite you to find your way there once more as we look uh, at God's Word together. And let's pray as we do that. Gracious God, it is your voice that we want to hear this morning. We thank you that you are not silent, that you have given us your Word as an abiding witness to who you are, and to what you've done. We thank you that this is not mere words, but your Spirit takes your word and applies it deeply to our hearts. And so we pray that that's what you would do this morning as we open your word, that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and that your Spirit would change our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that you can count on in the television industry, it's that when somebody stumbles onto a great idea for a show, there will be about 30 knockoffs of that show in the years to follow. You know, when Iron Chef came over from Japan and first appeared on the Food Network, it was the only kind of cooking competition of its kind. 1999, uh, in 2014, there are 16 cooking competitions on the Food Network, and I don't know how many there are since then. Or you think of, you know, the, the America's Got Talent shows, and then there's The Voice and all these other ones. Or, some of my favorites, uh, the survivalist shows. Or as I'm told, the official term for that is bushcraft. So, you know, what started with, uh, you know, Bear Grylls and Man vs. Wild and and Les Stroud, and Survivor Man, uh, spawn shows like Man, Woman, Wild, and Dual Survivor, and Alone is now in its second season, and, you know, and, they're, and they're incredibly popular, these survival shows. But you kind of, you know, with those shows in particular, you kind of have to stop and wonder why. You know, with a food competition, there's something I can maybe learn from watching that. You know, my food's not going to look like that, and it's not going to taste like that, but it might be better than it otherwise would have been. You know, there's something practical in watching a food show. But with a survivalist show, 
Do I really need to know how to filter my urine through a sock so as to avoid dehydration when I'm trapped in the desert? Is that a skill I need to carry in my back pocket? You know, or, or how to make a, a fish hook out of a pop can tab or soda can tab or you know, how to know which grubs are going to be nutritious and which ones are going to kill me. Are those really useful skills? And yet, we love watching, you know, Bear grills take a bite out of a moose's heart or something like that. You know, there's, you know, there's something disgusting and exhilarating all at the same time. And, and different people have, you know, tried to figure out what is the draw with these kinds of shows. What is the, what's behind the popularity, you know? Uh, some have suggested they kind of tap into this primitive instinct we all have, you know, to go back to the Stone Age or, or just kind of an escape to simpler times. Um, and, and, you know, there may be something to those, but I, I wonder if there's something about those kind of survival shows that resonates with an inner desire, not merely to survive, but to conquer something. You know, to, to face a challenge and overcome it. To be dropped into the Alaskan wilderness with nothing but a knife and a compass and walk out the other end victorious to civilization. Uh, it's the same reason people do things like skydive or, or climb Mount Everest. You know, we, we, we want to overcome the challenges of this world. It's just that uh, some of us prefer to do that vicariously from the couch you know, with a bag of pita chips and some hummus or something. Uh, but, you know, that inner desire to conquer, to overcome, uh, that's somehow triggered by these shows, has a very real correspondence to our spiritual life. Uh, and so does the imagery, not just of surviving, but of overcoming the wilderness. If you think through uh, the biblical stories that we have, one of the most common metaphors in the Bible for walking with God in a fallen world is as a journey through the wilderness. We see that picture over and over, very literally in Israel's experience, and it becomes this metaphor for our spiritual life. We know that there is a destination. There is a glorious civilization on the other side waiting for us, but there are all sorts of dangers and obstacles that stand between that civilization and us. Um, hardships that have to be overcome. The risk of losing our way, of getting disoriented or lost, the, list, the, the risk of losing our step, of, of slipping or falling into sin, the risk of malnutrition, teaching or ideas that, that don't provide any real spiritual nourishment or that even worse might be contaminated. There are predators to be aware of who would seek to harm us on our way. There's even an enemy hunting us in the wilderness who's, who will stop at nothing to mislead us and try and convince us that there is no such thing as a civilization on the other side, that the wilderness is as good as it gets, and so you might as well try and find what you're looking for here. We know that if we are to receive the prize in the end, that there is much in this broken world that must be overcome along the way. And yet, when we look at 1 John 5 this morning, 
what he is showing us here is that if we have Jesus, if we believe that he is the Son of God, if we trust and believe him, then though we are still in this wilderness, we will overcome because we already have overcome in him. We are conquerors, overcomers, victors, to use John's language here, in Christ. The problem is that we rarely feel that way. John's telling us that that we have overcome, we will overcome. But if we're honest, we rarely feel that way, and, and we don't always act that way. I don't know anybody who does a touchdown dance at the end of their day because they have triumphed over the sin and temptation of this world. You know, celebrating, in your face, Satan. You know, we don't, I don't know anybody who's like that. I mean, even on our best days, our best days, we fall miserably short of God's perfection. It's just who we are. You know, and, and so, therefore, we often live more of a defeated life than a, what we would describe as a victorious one. We live as though this world still has the edge, the advantage over us, as though we're still under its sway. We get discouraged over our selfishness. Uh, We feel enslaved to sinful habits that we just can't seem to kick. Maybe we feel vulnerable to those who would seek to take advantage of us or, or devastated at the hand that this life has dealt us. And so to hear John describe us as overcoming and having overcome the world, I mean, it feels like wishful thinking at best and, and maybe a bit naive and insensitive at worst. And so what does John mean when he, he uses this very triumphant language to describe something that's hard for us to even relate to? What does he mean when he tells us that those who have faith in Christ will overcome and already have overcome this world is it true is it true that jesus is qualified to be our conqueror our victor and if so what does it look like for us to live victoriously today well if you've been uh, with us through this series or, or if you've otherwise spent time in first john you'll know by now that john writes in a kind of rather circular and poetic way. Uh, he discusses a topic, and then later he returns to that topic to come at it from another angle, or maybe uh, come at it at a deeper level. And chapter 5 is no exception to that. Uh, the words you heard this morning were probably quite familiar if you've been reading or studying along with us. He starts by doing what he's been doing uh, throughout his letter, giving readers confidence in their relationship with God by pointing them to three key tests of genuine faith. Doctrine, love, and obedience. He's been going over these three tests again and again, and we see it right here at the beginning of our passage. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Doctrine. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Love. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Obedience. Doctrine, love, 
obedience. Again and again, John has shown us throughout this letter that if you want to be sure that you are a child of God, that you've been born of God by the Spirit, that your faith in Jesus is real, here's the evidence. Do you affirm the biblical gospel? Is is the Jesus that you believe in, that you're trusting in for your salvation, is he the same Jesus that the apostles witnessed and preached? The Jesus who is God's eternal son, who took on human flesh and stepped into this broken world to do for us what we couldn't and would not do for ourselves. Living a perfect, obedient life to his father and then who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross and rose again on the third day. Conquering sin and death and disarming the devil. Is that the Jesus that you're believing in? And do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? If your faith in the God who has loved us through Jesus is real, that love will overflow in the way that you treat each other. So do you affirm the biblical gospel? Do you love each other, not just in word and tongue, but in deed, in action, and in truth? And do you make a practice of obedience to God's commands? Is your life characterized by a pursuit of holiness? Or are you content in your sin where you're at? And it's kind of no big deal. Uh, It's not that we never sin. It's that we don't like it when we do and we want to change. We want to do better. We feel sorrowful over it and we want to grow. Genuine faith moves us to a life of repentance, of, of not making sin our habit, but making righteousness our habit, even though we still mess up. Not because we have some burdensome obligation before God. We don't pursue obedience because it's like the the terms and conditions on the relationship when we signed our name on it and trust Christ. And here's all the conditions we have to fulfill uh, for our, our relationship. That's not where obedience comes from. We pursue obedience because of love. And that's what John tells us again in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's tempting to think, you know, when you think about God's commands, it's tempting to view them as exactly what John says they're not, as a burden. Uh, You know, like hiking the Alaskan wilderness with a hundred pound pack on your back. Uh, it's ex- it's exhausting. It's it's crippling. It takes the fun out of the journey, and and so it's easy to see God as this kind of cosmic killjoy, uh, you know, the grumpy school teacher who should have retired ten years ago, but instead has made it their life's mission to have so many rules in the classroom that nobody will risk having fun. You know, that's that's we we think of God's rules that way, and the reality is, apart from Jesus. That's exactly what God's commands do to us. They're a crushing weight that we can never lift on our own. An expectation that we will never meet. A daily reminder of how holy God is and how unholy and sinful we are. Which usually leads us to one of two places. To either legalism 
or license, we call it. So legalism, where, where we try to earn God's favor by keeping his law. We try and gain his acceptance by performing for him and, and, and keeping his commandments, which in all honesty is something we can never actually do. Or in license, we, we just simply reject God's commands and, and live however we want. If I can't keep the law, why try? I'm just going to do my thing. Apart from Christ, God's commands are burdensome. We can't do them. But in Christ, in Christ, everything changes. In Christ, who not only perfectly kept God's commands as our representative, but also died in our place to take our failure to keep them on himself, the penalty for our failure and disobedience. In Christ, we have a new relationship to God's law. What we once ran from in fear, we now actually move toward in love. We want to honor God because we love him. What, we, what was once an enslaving burden is now a liberating delight. You know, we don't often think of God's law as, hey, fun, liberating, joyful. But think of, um, think of a board game. You know, how much fun is a board game if you don't play by the rules? You know, if you've got uh, little siblings or little children who insist on playing Monopoly or Sutlers of Catan with you or something like that, but they don't understand the rules at all, they don't last very long in that game. You know, they might start out enthusiastically moving game pieces around, and then they're bored in like two minutes. Uh, it's the rules that actually free you to enjoy the game that tune you into the purpose that the game even exists for. And so it is in our relationship with God. When we love God, we recognize that this is his world, that it exists for his purposes, and that we've been placed on it for a a reason, by his grace, for his glory. And, And we recognize that there will be no joy or lasting satisfaction apart from life according to the rules. The the game makes no sense if you try and use it for something it wasn't created to do. And God's commandments are what show us how to do that, how to love and honor God as he designed us in relationship to be. Uh, How to love God in a way that truly honors him. So, So rather than rules that restrict us, God's instructions, his commands are instructions for how to build a life that is beautiful and joyful and meaningful before God. That's what the law does for us. And that is impossible by ourselves. It's impossible to keep God's commands. And and, and, and even if we want to honor God, it's impossible by ourselves. But according to John, it's not only possible through faith in Christ. It's normal. It's the normal Christian experience to walk in obedience and love and faith with God. I mean, we, we look at that and we feel like, you know, we read First John, it's like, well, yeah, that's what the super Christians do. You know, those who are really into it. Uh, the mature, spiritual, and, and maybe someday I'll be like that. But John is telling us that this is what a Christian life normally looks like. 
even as we live out our days in a fallen world, even as we face obstacles of all kinds, surrounded by trials and, and, and temptations that have to be overcome, obedience, faith, and love is the mark of a normal Christian life. If you notice the repetition between verses 1 and 4, everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's the normal expectation, the normal confidence that we ought to have as followers of Christ. It's not super spirituality. It's not wishful thinking. This is Christianity. God's children have confidence to overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not because of anything in us. You know, that much should be obvious to all of us. Uh, It's not because of anything in us. It's not possible by ourselves, but it is possible and normal through faith in Jesus. He's what makes the difference. If you look at at verses 4 and 5, notice where John puts his emphasis as to where we find this power to overcome the world. He says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith in whom? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes or has faith that Jesus is the Son of God? It's Jesus that makes the difference in this scenario. God's children have confidence to overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice here, John speaks of overcoming in both the present and the past tense. We are overcoming the world right now because we already have overcome it through faith in Jesus. Our victory today is sure because it has already been secured in the past by what Christ has done. So how does all of that work? Because again, it's like, all right, I see what he's saying there. Not sure I experience that, though. Not sure that I feel that that is true of me. Uh, how, how does this work? You know, we sang a little bit ago, we are more than conquerors. I feel like a lot less than a conqueror most days, if I'm honest. And, and so how can John be so confident in our victory over the world in Christ? And what does it look like for me to put that into practice? Well, first, we have to be convinced that Jesus really has overcome the world. That's the next thing that John wants to demonstrate. That, it, that you know, if we have any hope of overcoming the world through faith in Jesus, we need to be convinced that our faith is in the right person. And so in verses 6 through 12, that's the case that John makes for us, that, that Jesus really is our conqueror. And he, and he does so in his own rather obscure and poetic way. Uh, so speaking of Jesus, he says in verses 6 through 8, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three who testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. What in the world does that mean? 
And what, what the water and the blood and the spirit. This is, again, John's own poetic way of, of making his point. And, uh, you know, if you have some time to kill, you can read all sorts of different suggestions of what this might actually mean in, in you know, some of the commentary literature out there. Uh, some see the references to water and blood as a, as a reference to the sacraments of baptism and communion. Um, you know, water, blood, I can see the connection, but there's really nothing in the context that would make that case. Uh, others see here a reference to the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side when he was pierced in John 19. But it would be strange that John would need to remind them that blood was involved, not just water. It kind of seems backwards there. Uh, the most likely meaning is that John is, is using poetic language to refer to the bookends of Jesus' earthly ministry. The water launching his ministry with baptism, his baptism, and the blood concluding, climaxing his ministry with the cross. And so Jesus is not only our representative in his life of perfect obedience to the Father, crediting us his righteousness, a righteousness we did not earn, He is also and necessarily our representative in his death on the cross where he took on himself the penalty that we did earn, offering his life as what John has described as a propitiation for our sins, an atoning sacrifice that bears God's wrath in our place. And that's something John was afraid his readers would overlook. He's made that point several times and kind of trying to uh, respond to some of the false teachers around the congregation he's writing to. And, and so the water and the blood is, is most likely, again, the bookends of Jesus' life, that he is our representative, our Savior, in both his life and his death. Uh, theologians refer to that as his active and passive obedience. He actively obeyed the Father in our place, and he passively accepted our punishment for us. And that is what qualifies him to be our conqueror, our victor. He overcame the world through his life and his death. He conquered it. He faced every temptation that you and I will ever face. He squared off with the devil in the literal wilderness for 40 days. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was ignored, he was slandered, he was abandoned, he was betrayed. And through it all, he not only withstood temptation, but he faithfully completed the work his father gave him to do. He not only didn't sin, he perfectly obeyed his father and the mission he sent him to accomplish, culminating in offering his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. As John puts it in chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But Jesus, according to chapter 3, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He has conquered in our place. He was sent into the wilderness of this fallen world with a mission to rescue a people for himself. And he came out the other side of that wilderness victorious. He did it through the water and the blood, his life and his death for us. The Holy Spirit testifies 
to the faithfulness of Jesus. The Father testifies to the faithfulness of Jesus. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. And we who believe in him testify to the faithfulness of Jesus. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. that He is sufficient. He is faithful. He has overcome. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And because Jesus has conquered, Jesus has overcome through his life and his death and already claimed victory over this fallen world, then we who are in him already share in his inheritance. And that's, that's the amazing part. Verses 11 and 12, this inheritance which John describes both in his gospel and his letters as eternal life. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the victory he has accomplished, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have that victory, does not have life. That is our victory in Christ, eternal life. The the prize, the reward, the glorious civilization waiting on the other side, and it's already ours in Christ. Even though we're still in the wilderness, we are confident to inherit that prize Because Jesus has won it for us. So think of those survival competitions again. You know, every single one of us, if we were dropped into the Alaskan wilderness, would perish within a few days, probably. You know, maybe some of us, I'm pretty sure Scott Turner would outlast everyone. But other than that, you know, we, we, you know, we all fail. Every one of us in this world. So Jesus comes and enters the competition on our behalf and comes through it victorious. And if, if we're on his team, if we're united with him by faith, if we're adopted into his family, born of God, that means if he wins, we win too. Even though we're still in the wilderness, kind of wandering around, trying to find our way. No. He has claimed the victory for us, we still face obstacles every day in this fallen world. But Jesus has claimed the prize for us in advance, and because he has overcome, he is able to help us overcome day to day as well. And that's kind of where the rubber meets the road with this calling of living victoriously in a broken world. How can I have confidence? You know, I I can get that, okay, Jesus has secured the victory for me. But how do I live victoriously today? How do I put that into practice right now in the things that I face and the challenges before me? Well, first, we have to recognize that when John talks about overcoming the world, he's not talking about, Jesus getting to the other side and then sending a a helicopter in for an extraction just to kind of free us from all the trials and temptations. That once, now that he's overcome, 
I shouldn't have to face any problems anymore. Uh, that's not what he's talking about, overcoming. Jesus says himself in John sixteen thirty three, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So it's not the absence of obstacles. That's not what it means to overcome. Nor is Jesus talking about some sort of sinless perfection. Uh, many have tried to read that out of these verses and have come up with all sorts of ideas about how to achieve like a, a kind of sinless perfection right here and right now before heaven. You know, whether it's a, a second blessing or a second baptism of the Spirit in different circles and so on. But not only do those ideas run counter to the Bible, generally speaking, they don't even fit in with First John. Uh, if, if you remember what John said back at the beginning of chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation of our sins. And so, so John recognizes that sin is still a problem for those walking with Christ in a fallen world, such that we still need an advocate before the Father when we mess up. Overcoming the world, walking in victory with Christ, does not mean sinless perfection. What it means, rather is progress. Am I making progress in my walk with God? Am I moving in the right direction? Not making a practice of sin, but coming closer and closer to the civilization that's waiting for me each day. This is the practical victory that we have in Christ, that our lives are characterized less and less by disobedience and more and more by obedience as we depend on and follow Jesus each day. As the New Testament describes it, this kind of victorious living uh, involves two things. Surrendering to Christ and striving for holiness. Surrendering to Christ and striving for holiness. So we, we start by recognizing, I'm in the wilderness and I can't get out. I am, you know, we, we own our sin, our weakness, uh, that, that left to ourselves, we would never find our way out. Instead, we'd simply be headed deeper in. And instead of relying on our own survival skills, which will invariably fall short, we recognize that we must surrender ourselves wholly to Christ, to rest in him as our victor, as our conqueror. That's the... The poverty of self that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt left to themselves. That's the utter dependence that, that Jesus describes in John fifteen four. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Utter dependence on our Savior. It's embracing what Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. And so, so walking in victory, making progress in my spiritual life begins by surrendering to Christ, by saying no to self and yes to Jesus. It's, it's hiding in Jesus as our protection. It's running to Jesus as our propitiation, our, our atoning sacrifice when we fail. It's following Jesus as our pattern and depending on his spirit as our power. Our victory over this world begins by, not by striving and fighting and, and, and doing what we can do out of our own flesh, but by resting in Jesus. So that's the first overarching part. But the second is that in our surrender, not in addition to it, but as a surrendered person, we strive for holiness. And this is critical, that we recognize it's not only surrender, but also striving. One, because it's biblical, but two, because it's become popular over the last century to suggest that surrender is the only thing that's involved in having an abiding relationship with Christ. That, that to live the victorious Christian life is to let go and let God and nothing more. Don't do anything else. Uh, that we are entirely passive in our pursuit of obedience. We just have to let Jesus do the work through us. As one advocate describes, you relax almost like a spectator in your fight against sin. Except that it's your hands that he's at work through. You, in your humanity, are simply the clothing of his divine activity. And so to depend on Christ, that means you just have to get yourself out of the way. Uh, the only obstacle between you and living victoriously every day is your uh, failure to surrender your whole self to him. And so if you do that, you will experience this victorious Christian life. You will be able to do your touchdown dance in Satan's face every day if you can surrender yourself, let go, and let God do the work for you. Now, that sounds spiritual and, and maybe familiar to some of us. But not only does it fall short of a biblical portrait of holiness, which involves both surrender and striving, it's actually quite dangerous in that it makes offers of holiness that it cannot make good on. And... and I've met people who've been burned out on God by trying to get this right and always failing. In fact, uh, J.I. Packer, a notable theologian, relates his own story of nearly being destroyed by this approach to spirituality. He writes, I tried to practice the consecration and faith technique as I'd understood it, but I did not get on well at all. I scraped my inside, figuratively speaking, to find things to yield to the Lord so as to make my surrender complete. And I worked hard to, to let go and let God when temptation made its presence felt. At the time, I did not know that Harry Ironside, sometime pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, once drove himself into a full-scale mental breakdown through trying to find the secret I was trying to find and the way I was trying to find it. All I knew is that the expected and promised experience was not coming, the technique was not working. And since, according to the teaching, everything depended on consecration being total, the fault must lie with me. So I must scrape my inside yet again and 
to find whatever maggots of unconsecrated selfhood still lurked there. After a few months of this, left me, as you can imagine, fairly frantic. And what rescued Packer from his self-loathing witch hunt was stumbling onto the works of John Owen and J.C. Ryle in a collection, somebody, a book somebody had donated him, which collectively pointed him to Romans 6 through 8. And there he discovered the uniform message of the New Testament that, that we are called not only to surrender to God, but also within our surrender to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, to quote Hebrews. Jesus supplies the victory and the power and calls us to put it into practice. It's that kind of mystery and tension in our pursuit of holiness that you see in, in, uh, that Paul captures in Colossians 1.29. Writing of his ministry, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So God supplies the power, but I am called to struggle and toil with his power, not just to, to relax and try and let Jesus possess me somehow, and make my decisions for me and fight my temptations for me, which is what that victorious Christian living amounts to. Overcoming this world means surrendering everything to Jesus and within that surrender, striving for holiness, fighting the good fight. It's a gospel-fueled obedience. It's, it's knowing that Christ has already won the battle, and so we fight with confidence that our victory is sure. We struggle with his resources, his spirit, his word, his grace, his family, one another. We don't do this by ourselves. But we fight. We fight. We depend on Jesus' power and follow his pattern. I think Hebrews 12, the verses that, that Drew read at the beginning of the service, capture this calling very well. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so many people who have who have uh, said no to themselves and trusted God and, and persevered through faith. You, you read chapter 11. That's what he's talking about there. Since we're surrounded by so many great examples of people who have followed Christ and persevered, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus blazed the trail through the wilderness for us. He is our champion and our victor. He is our protector when we're threatened, our savior when we fail, our motivation to get up and fight again, our power to overcome the battle. And through Jesus, we will overcome because in Jesus, we already have overcome. We can live with confidence that whatever we're facing, Jesus is bigger than that. And we can trust that and follow him. John wants us to know this victory. This whole book has been about how to, you know, what it means to have an abiding, intimate relationship with God. Part of that is this kind of confidence 
in our walk. He wants us to know this victory, to believe that it is ours in Christ, and to experience it in increasing measures day by day. He wants us to make progress. He wants us to know the joy and freedom of a life marked by love and faith and obedience. He wants us to know that that's only possible through Jesus Christ. If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. And he wants us to know that it's not only possible, it's normal. It's normal. As we trust Jesus more and more each day, he makes us more and more like him each day. Are we moving in the right direction? God's children have confidence to overcome this world through faith in Jesus Christ. Gracious Father, as we consider your word this morning, Lord, for those of us who look at these words and say, yeah, that's me, I've got this nailed, would you remind us that it's only through your power that, that this is possible? Would you keep us humble and dependent on you and not us? For those of us who look at this passage and say, I don't even know where to start. I don't feel like that's true at all. Would you encourage our hearts? Would you encourage us to look not first and foremost at our track record, but at Christ's track record for us? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith? And would you give us confidence in him, not in ourselves, in him to put one foot in front of the other in our fight against sin? And would you remind us, Lord, that, that we are not alone in this battle, that as we uh, face obstacles, you know, whether they are temptations or trials or, or, or hardships of, of all sorts, that we're not called to uh, we're not dropped into the wilderness by ourselves, Lord, but as a family, we're there. And that we can rely on one another as we follow Christ together. Would you give us the grace to do that? And would you fill our hearts with the confident expectation that a day is coming when we will finally be home? Let us live today in light of that truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.